welcome to the Ideas Untrapped podcast, where we examine the role of ideas in the progress and prosperity of nations. Welcome to the second season of the show, and over the next couple of months, we are going to be talking to incredible guests. Today, we are still going to be looking at the issue of economic policy making in Nigeria and a host of other things. The National Bureau of Statistics just released its report on the economy and Nigeria has thankfully exited a recession, though growth is still very low and fragile. Some of the macroeconomic problems of the country has not disappeared. Inflation is through the roof. Unemployment is still very high. The FX situation is still not really coherent. So it's always good to ask whether things could have been better if we had a consistent, saner policy climate over the past five years. And it's something that my guest today can speak knowledgeably about. He's the former deputy governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria. He's a lawyer. He's a professor of political economy and also a former presidential candidate. Professor Kingsley Mogalu has loads of insights and I learned a lot. I hope you guys enjoy it. My very first question would be from an institutional perspective that I know you're very familiar with, which is central banking in Nigeria, as it is currently. So the first question I would put to you in that regard is the core mandate, as it is generally described in economics of a central bank, is uh, price stability and uh, low unemployment rates using monetary policy tools. But over the last four or five years, we've seen the Central Bank of Nigeria operate under what seemed to be an expanded mandate. And one of the justifications for that is that because Nigeria is a low-income country, the traditional, or should I say the conservative conception of central banking does not apply and central banks has to operate under a different rule. How true is this? Do you agree? Well, first of all, I want to correct you uh, when you talked about the mandate of the Central Bank of Nigeria being about uh, price stability and uh, low unemployment. Price stability is definitely a core mandate of the Nigerian Central Bank, but low unemployment is not part of the mandate of the Central Bank of Nigeria. I want to be very clear because that's a factual error. The the, low unemployment is a mandate of the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, for example, Uh, but that's not necessarily the same with the bank, uh, Central Bank in Nigeria. Central Bank in Nigeria, the mandates are, you know, price stability, uh, financial stability, to manage the payment system of Nigeria, and also to serve as an economic uh, financial advisor. They're a bank for the government, you know, uh, and to serve as a financial advisor to the government of Nigeria. So these are, in brief, the different aspects of the mandate of the bank. Now, there is 
a part of the Central Bank Act, which authorizes the Central Bank to also play a role in development finance. And it is that role that has been used for a number of roles, which in the view of many have become too widely expanded. And there is legitimate concern about that because one of the reasons this seems to be happening is that, or is what I call absence of state capacity. The central bank is one of the strongest institutions in Nigeria, especially in terms of human resources. The central bank has many, many, many PhD holders, very strong intellectuals, strong professionals, and you don't always find this, uh, plus of course, combined with the financial capacity of the bank. You don't find these things in many aspects of the government, especially the fiscal side of the country's economic management. That is to say the management of taxation, the management of debt, you know, and just basically revenues for, for the government, which is the function of fiscal policy. Now, because the fiscal side and other aspects of economic policy in the government have not been as strong as the central bank has been in its own area. There has become like um, a fallback of, oh, take the problem to the central bank. Oh, take the problem to the central bank. Because one, they have money. And two, they seem to have a strong institutional capacity to carry anything they want to carry. So this is what is happening. And I think while there is some argument that the Central Bank of Nigeria is not the Bank of England. And so, you know, expecting it to focus only on monetary policy may be unrealistic, but we should work a careful balance between that and the Central Bank becoming a jack of all trades. And many people feel that that has happened a lot in the last few years, and therefore they criticize it. And I think they may have a point because the more and more the Central Bank gets into things that are not its core mandate, the more its attention is distracted from focused delivery on its core mandate. So that's my answer to that question. Now, from your perspective and in your opinion, in the current policy climate, I have to emphasize that, do yes. you think that the CBN, that is the Central Bank of Nigeria, is an independent institution? especially given the roles it has taken up in terms of uh, regulation of trade, industrial policy, and other things? Well, as I have said before, you know, there are many people who are concerned that the central bank is getting into too many other areas of economic activity that are not its core mandate. But that's because of the weakness of the capacity of the government. So I think the solution to the problem is to go and address that capacity problem in trade policy, in fiscal policy, in national planning. These are all parts of the economic policy universe. The central bank is not the only part of the economic policy universe, although many people in Nigeria now seem to equate the central bank alone with the economy. But this is, is not right. So I think those other aspects of uh, trade policy, uh, fiscal policy, national policy, we need to focus on them. We also need to understand that economic policy has to be joined together. There is some connection between what the central bank is doing, what the fiscal policy is doing, and what trade policy is doing. And we find this, for example, in the foreign exchange management, where the central bank has imposed 
or restrictions on bans on the provision of foreign exchange for the importation of certain things. So that is happening because we don't have a muscular trade policy. That should be handled in the area of trade policy, but the central bank is, is taking that up. Now you ask about central bank independence. Central bank independence is very important for the effective functioning of any central bank. It is not an absolute independence. I mean, the bank is not, uh, it's, it's still part of the structure of the government. But within the government, it is recognized that the central bank has to have some independence, especially in monetary policy. But in the Central Bank Act of 2007, as amended, it provides very clearly that the central bank is not to take external instructions outside of the bank itself and the board of directors and the committee of governors and the monetary policy committee. These are the three leadership institutions of the central bank, the board of directors, the monetary policy committee and the committee of governors. They are not supposed to take instructions from outside this group, you know, and many people feel that it appears that the central bank has come under the sway of the government, specifically the presidency in the last few years. And many people, of course, then criticize this. I have been one of those people who have commented, expressed concern that, you know, the central bank today is not as independent as it was in my own time. I want to speak a bit on the question of state capacity that uh, you mentioned. How do you think that the capacity which you have described is present at the central bank can be expanded yes. to other areas of governance? Do we need to embrace more technocracy? Is it in the reform of the civil service or do we need to enforce more meritocracy in the hiring process? What are the things you think can be done? I think all these things you have mentioned are all very necessary. There is need for meritocracy. There's need for a more technocratic approach to the civil service institutions or the public service institutions in Nigeria. The problem is that a lot of those institutions have become politicized. They have become extensions of ruling political parties. And I say this not just of the federal government, but also at the levels of states. So I think there needs to be also a reform of the public service. And we know that there was an effort that started in this direction under President Jonathan when we had the Oron Sire report that recommended for the um, consolidation of several overlapping agencies. You know, the report felt there were too many parastatals and they were not necessarily adding value. So we need a comprehensive approach to the reform of the public service, which includes the parastatals and the civil service itself, the ministries. Uh, that reform should be focused on very clear mandates, focused on leadership and capacity development to deliver on those mandates, and they should focus on performance management so that the output of the civil service and the wider public service needs to be measured institutionally against their mandate. So this is the focus I would recommend for public service reform. So yes, meritocracy is important. I would recommend a less politicization and more institutionalization because every country that becomes great has very strong institutions that are somewhat independent of the politics on top of it. 
Yes, because politicians come and go, but these institutions remain. So it is these institutions that actually carry the state. You know, the purpose of elections, especially in countries that have a philosophical basis for their political parties, like in the US or most of Western Europe, is that when governments are elected, they begin to drive programs that are in consonance with their philosophy. And it is the duty of the civil service to actually make those programs work for the people. But that's a different thing from interfering with the civil service itself or interfering with the workings of the public service. But I think there should be a distance between, between the two. I'm glad you touched on some bits of my next question, which is also a bit tangential to the current uh, discussion. Stay with the capacity question a bit. Yeah. There is some bit of evidence from, say, the economic history literature that you almost never find a high capacity state that is poor. So do you think that the state capacity question in Nigeria can be divorced from the current income status of the country itself? They are related. They are related. They cannot be divorced. Because an efficient and capable state helps to raise the standard of living of citizens. Because they frame and execute economic policy that actually works to help people come out of poverty. That is why we should invest a lot in the public service of Nigeria. To be able to execute programs, to be able to devise programs that can help lift people out of poverty. In the 60s and the 70s, we had a strong state a strong public service. And we find that many of those civil servants were the ones who would advise the high-level political leaders, in those cases, the military leaders, uh, the super permanent secretaries, and so on and so forth. And the Nigerian state was functioning more effectively in those days because the institutions and the civil service had a lot more influence in public life. You know, today, the civil service and the institutions have very little influence in public life, and everything has just become so politicized. Now, when we talk about state capacity, we are talking about capacity in a number of ways. We are talking about the capacity of a state to protect its citizens, for example, to ensure security, to protect its territorial integrity. That is one aspect of state's capacity. Another aspect of state capacity is what we call extractive capacity. The ability of the state to generate revenues to sustain the state. In this area, you begin to talk about taxation, the efficiency and the effectiveness of the tax system, uh, and so on, you know, and the capacity of the state to project its influence globally and internationally. So there are several dimensions of state capacity, and we find all of them failing in Nigeria today. And that's very sad, to be honest. Yeah, let's move a bit to question of economic policy. You talked about philosophy, especially on the economic side. Yes. Do you think we need a shift in the philosophical orientation of our leaders? Yes. Particularly, do we need to be more capitalist in orientation? Because in my observation, what I see is that too much of economic policy making is burdened by questions of redistribution before growth. You are completely correct. First of all, there is no philosophical basis for economic policy in Nigeria. So the question actually has not even been scratched. What we call economic policy making in Nigeria today 
it's just a series of motions and you know political gestures and positionings and statements there's no coherent philosophy underlying the management of the Nigerian economy. We are not clear in our minds that, you know, are we a capitalist economy? And if so, what type of capitalist economy are we? There are different types of capitalism. There is welfare capitalism. There is entrepreneurial capitalism. There is crony capitalism. And there's state capitalism, the way it's done in China. But the only reason China is able to do this, as perhaps the only country in the world that can do this, is because China, as a state, is a highly capable state. The Chinese public service and bureaucracy is first class. We call them the mandarins. And that's where that word came from. You know, so they're able to direct the economy to serve the purposes of the state, including knowing when to use capitalist principles, moving away from their original idea of socialism. This is what they were able to do 40 years ago, and that's what gave rise to the rise of China today. So in making economic policy, I advocate for what I call strategic capitalism. And that is that the best way for a country like Nigeria to develop itself is to become a developmental state that is skewed towards market principles. There are different types of developmental states. There's developmental states such as you have in Ethiopia, for example, where the state, which is also a highly capable state, Ethiopia has a civil service university, the only country I know in Africa that has such an institution, where people are actually trained to be part of the civil service. You know, so you find that the civil service there is strong. And so they're able to direct their development the way China does. But the characteristics of Nigeria seem better suited to a market economy that is moderated to be an inclusive market economy. That is to say the market forces should determine. But we have to understand that we must first generate wealth before we can redistribute it. What you have today in Nigeria is a philosophical confusion where the government is trying to redistribute wealth that has not been created. So you find all these social intervention programs and they become not very effective because the conceptual basis of the economy has not been very clearly defined. So two things you find in Nigeria today, an attempt to be a welfare state without having first created wealth, and two, a lot of crony capitalism in which you know, basically rent-seeking, patronage, advantages are given to people who have access to those in power, and those individuals become rich, while the rest of the citizens are getting poorer. So this is what you see in Nigeria. And I recommend more for Nigeria, an entrepreneurial capitalist system where the wealth of the country is unleashed. There's another level of this discussion. If you want to be a capitalist state, how does the Nigerian government how does Nigerian politics understand the concept of capitalism? There's no discussion about this type of thing in Nigerian politics. Whereas for you to be successful as a capitalist society, there must be three things present. One, property rights. Two, innovation. Three, capital. Nigeria, property rights are seriously circumscribed because the government owns property, the land. The most important property is land and it belongs to the state under the Land Use Act. 
not directly to individuals in freehold. This limits Nigeria's economic possibilities. Nigeria does not have a very serious policy and practice or social culture of innovation. When I talk about innovation, I'm talking about all our young men and women who invent new ideas, new things, but we don't practicalize these inventions. We don't see them on the shelves in the market because the government policy and the process of the market are not aligned to support these brilliant young kids. And then we don't have capital because our tax to GDP ratio is very low at about 6%. So we're not able to even generate capital from the exercise of the functions of the state in terms of the extractive capacity, which we discussed earlier about state capacity, the capacity to extract resources from within the country uh, to develop itself. So there are several levels at which philosophy is essential but is absent in Nigerian economic policy thinking. Here is another place where philosophical understandings are important or conceptual understandings. We, we want to develop, but we need to understand that there are three stages of development. There's human development, there's economic growth, and there is structural economic transformation. You see, all three can be happening at the same time, but in reality, one must happen before the other. We must first focus on human development, and we must invest in our human capacity, developing our schools, our health systems, you know, our schools to be able to produce the kind of skilled labor that creates economic growth, economic growth that can be inclusive because many people are benefiting from it. Many people are creating that growth, but are at the same time benefiting from it because they have the skills that produce value-added services and goods. So these are all the issues in economic policy in Nigeria that need to be addressed fundamentally. And when I ran for president in 2019, these were the kinds of things I said that if I were to be president of Nigeria, I'll go back to the basics and we have to sort these things out so that Nigeria can actually prosper. Staying with this philosophical discussion a bit, do you think part of the problem is a failure of public discourse, whether through the academia and the media? Because we can't say that we don't have elites who are exposed. And of course, who, we do. Yeah. So what exactly is the constraint in the maturity of public discourse philosophically? Yes. The constraint is that we allowed um, the... It was a combination of not just we allowed, but the military regimes of the past also contributed to this because as transition programs were extended and, you know, uh, sometimes delayed and all that, many intellectuals were eliminated from the political discussion, the discussions about forming parties or, you know, forming political groups. So today we are in a situation where the worst try to lead the best. The people who are thinkers, the people who have ideas are not influential in Nigerian politics. Uh, the people who are influential in Nigerian politics are the people who are non-intellectual. And even when you have a few intellectuals, they get swallowed into the culture of anti-intellectualism and that frames the public discourse. So if you come with ideas, Nigerians will say, ah, the man, they blow grammar. But there is, a, there is a role for the citizens in this. Because in the citizens saying this man is blowing grammar, we want the practical. 
They don't understand you can never achieve anything, quote-unquote, practically, if it is not based on a sound conceptual foundation. Nigerian citizens do not understand this. They think you can just do. But show me the society that has progressed just by doing, without thinking. Thinking is more important than we think, as I always say. So we need a new generation of political leadership, political leaders, who are thinkers and doers, who understand that you can only progress in doing if it is based on serious thinking. That's where people like me come in. So the fault is in both the way the military transitions to civilian rule occurred, because in 1999, for example, many intellectuals did not believe the military was serious about handing over power. And so they did not participate after many years of delayed transitions and so on. So they felt, well, the military again, who knows if you can trust them. But then the transition actually happened. And the people who were quick to move in into the breach were the 419 Yahoo Yahoos mainly. I mean, there were some intellectuals like Alex Ekweme, for example, who was a solid intellectual and a very influential uh, political leader. But these were exceptions, not the rule. So there, there's a problem with the military transitions to civilian rule that created this outcome. And Nigerian citizens themselves, who bear a very high level of responsibility, but do not realize it, because the political discourse has been dumbed down for the past 20 years. So our citizens have not understood that it is up to them to demand a certain standard of performance in their politicians. And it is that standard of performance that will create room for us to elect people who have ideas, who are intellectual, and can translate those ideas into policy. I mean, I had a conversation with Professor Patutumi, and he made some of the points that you are making right now. One thing he also talked about, which I would ask you straight away, is that the Nigerian middle class is also complacent in this problem by ceding the space to thoughts and charlatans. Do you agree? I do agree. I agree. The Nigerian middle class is criminal in its neglect of its responsibility. No country makes progress that is not driven by the middle class. But the Nigerian middle class sees itself today as simply invested only in the survival of its individual members. They are not participating in politics. They are not participating in public discourse. uh, And many of them are only interested in getting crumbs from the tables of the politicians. And so they don't want to rock the boat because they're benefiting individually or they're looking for opportunities to benefit individually. So they've abandoned the society to itself. And, you know, to your thanks, oh Israel, I'm looking out for my stomach. This is the charge that I lay at the doorstep of the middle class. And unless the middle class wakes up to understand that it is for us to drive change in the Nigerian society, it's going to be hard. So what do you think that we as a people can do practically to start reclaiming that space? The most important practical solution is that all of us must register to vote and vote. All of us must become involved in the political process. There are too many people in Nigeria who suffer from political apathy. Oh, all those politicians, oh, politics is dirty. And therefore, they leave the space to the charlatans to take it over. But if many of us 
millions of us who are educated, who can think, go into the political process, not necessarily as candidates or anything, just be engaged, register, vote. It's not going to be easy to rig elections where millions and millions of people vote overwhelmingly in the right direction. It's not, it's not easy to rig elections. You rig elections when the voter turnout is low. If the voter turnout is very high and they are voting in one direction, it's almost impossible to rig those elections. This is what we don't realize. So it becomes a chicken and egg problem. We retreat. The charlatans take over. Instead of us understanding that if we advance in numbers, they will retreat. Do you see the problem? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's where we are. So at this point, I have to ask you, are you running again in 2023 for president? I am thinking about it. I'm thinking about running for president. I'm considering it very carefully. There are many issues involved in running for president, and I'm weighing, I'm weighing those issues. Um, and um, I will be able to come to a decision not very long from now. And I'm sure I will make my decision plain if I decide to run. So at the risk of uh, giving much away, in, or should I say controlling for that, what do you plan to do if you do decide to run to avoid what the mistakes were the last time? I know there was a coalition that did not eventually work out. I know there's the question of voter turnout. And I mean, 2023 is upon us, and there seem to be that the way things are, it's going to be business as usual. It is up to Nigerian citizens whether they want to make it business as usual or not. If they allow it to be business as usual because they refuse to step forward and take control of the narrative and shape their own destiny, then of course it will be business as usual. There was no mistake in 2019. I didn't make any mistake. You know, it, it, the election outcome was a reflection of where the people were at that time. It is about the mindset of Nigerians. If Nigerians have surrendered themselves to the mental conditioning that only the APC and PDP can win, and therefore they vote for candidates for those two parties because they have quote-unquote structures. Mm. <laughs> but those structures win elections, but they cannot govern, as we have seen today. Whether it's police brutality, NSAS, all these things, it is produced by these traditional politicians that you yourself have voted for. So the question is, must you vote for them? Except if you're a mental slave, if you're a mental captive, we can set ourselves free. There is no inevitability of the APC or the PDP for president of Nigeria. If the masses of Nigeria decide that they will vote for the right kinds of individuals, not voting because of political party, you identify the individual who can be a good president and you vote for his or her party. That's what we should do in 2023, instead of being intimidated by party structures. Do you see what I'm saying? So these are the things. A lot of it is in the hands of Nigerians. But for me, if I were to make a decision uh, to, to run, I would go straight to the people and engage them in these discussions about the need to set ourselves free. It's a choice then that they have to make. You talked about a coalition. This is one of the mistakes we should not make in 2023. There is no need for anybody to make some artificial requirement 
that you have to have a coalition before we can vote for you. That's nonsense. It's not democracy. If seven people apply for a job, do you say to them, go and form a coalition and decide who we will recruit for the job? No. The seven people are applying for a job. One person will get the job. Let the company managers who are hiring decide who among the seven people to give the job. The same thing with politics. If seven people say they're running for president, let Nigerians and young people, old and young, choose who they want to elect as president. Don't subject them to some artificial requirement to go and form a coalition. Because people have different visions. People have different visions. You cannot say to them, you must all surrender your vision. That's not fair. Let them bring their vision into the marketplace and let it be tested. If they voluntarily agree to form coalitions, fine. That's what I'm saying. But it should not be forced and it should not be expected before people vote. Say, oh, I didn't vote because they didn't form a youth, they didn't select a consensus youth candidate. That is nonsense. That's one of the lessons I learned from the last, last election. It's not a realistic expectation. And nobody should be looking forward to that in 2023. So a big part of your engagement, at least from your Twitter and that I follow, is leadership and the need for a vision. Yes. So as a leader, if you win or maybe you don't, but what do you think the vision for Nigeria into the future should be? How should it be articulated? I have said that my vision of Nigeria is of a big, powerful and prosperous modern nation in the 21st century. I envision Nigeria in which large parts of the North look like Dubai. The Middle Belt could be like the Netherlands because it's an agricultural belt. The Southeast could be like Japan or Taiwan or Singapore. The South-South could be like Norway, which has oil. You know, the Southwest could be like Germany, which is an industrial behemoth. So this is the kind of vision I have for Nigeria, a modern 21st century nation. I have a vision of Nigeria that is constitutionally restructured so that there's true federalism and the regions or the states are truly in charge of most of their own affairs. And the federal government handles a very limited number of functions, but it's not a weak government. It's not weak, but it's limited in its role, so that other parts of the federation, be it the regions or states, can have the chance to truly grow. Of course, resource control is a primary part of this, that each of the regions or states must generate their own revenues and own those revenues and just turn over maybe 30% of it or 40% of it to the federal government. That's how Nigeria operated in the 60s. Uh, there was a 50-50 arrangement uh, where the regions kept 50% of their resources and gave 50% to the federal government. So the regions, Nigeria grew best in the, from 1960 to 1966, uh, or even from 1954, when the regional structure was first set up. You know, So those 10 to 12 years were the golden years of growth because growth was regionally driven and the regions were competing amongst themselves. This brought development. Today, everything is in the power of the federal government, and this has distorted the process of development because 
there is too much rent seeking at the center, too much patronage. Everybody's fighting to control power at the center. And everybody is a supplicant with a begging bowl for the fact the Federal Account Allocation Committee every month. And everybody's dependent on revenues from oil. And we have not been able to diversify our economy. When we have true federalism, our economy will diversify by force because those who own their revenues will control it. Those who own the revenues of uh, solid minerals in the north will control it. The southeast doesn't have that much, but there are a few things, gas reserves in Anambra state, uh, but otherwise not that much, you know, uh, but they will be prosperous as well because they're industrious, they manufacture and they trade. So this is the way for Nigeria to prosper. Nigeria must be decentralized. Constitutional power and authority has to be decentralized in Nigeria for our country to prosper. I'm going to ask you to play the forecaster. What would you predict for the next 60 years of Nigeria? I mean, we are 60 years old as a nation. What would you predict? What are the trends? What are the structures do you see for the, the trends future? right now? The trends right now are not good. We will have 400 million people by about 2050. That's about double our current population. On the current trajectory of our human capacity development, you know, human capital, education and health, it's not doesn't look good because we'll have a lot, lot more poor people. We have 100 million people living in extreme poverty today. That's almost 50% of the population. Then our population trends, this question of huge expansion of the population running ahead of economic growth. Again, it does not present an encouraging trend for Nigeria over the next 60 years. Unless, unless we change the trajectory. And I think 2023 is a fundamental opportunity for us as a country to change that trajectory for the better. That is to say, we either restructure now or we elect a leadership in 2023 that is committed to the constitutional restructuring of Nigeria. That's the only way we can avert a crisis in the next 50 to 60 years. Otherwise, we'll have a huge army of young people who may have no jobs, who may be poor, and that invites a lot of conflict. It's called the youth bulge. So, but we can change that trajectory and turn our youth and our population to our advantage by creating economic policy, a political structure that allows our young people to acquire the skills to be productive. And in that way, we can have a large population, but it's a productive large population like China. Thank you very much, Professor Morgalu. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. You're very welcome. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com.